This is the Illuminate Podcast, a Sandy Boy production. Each week on the Illuminate Podcast, the hosts will bring you insightful conversations and stories of people who are illuminating their own lives through their business, work, community, family, and world. Welcome to the Illuminate Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Kristen Sruer. You're listening to episode two. Today on the Illuminate Podcast, I'm so excited to introduce you to Jenna Nardella. Jenna is an entrepreneur, an author, an activist, a visionary, a wife, and a mother. We talk about how she, she co-founded an organization called Blood Water, how being a mother has changed her, and so much more. I loved my conversation with Jenna and took so many things away from it, and I hope you do too. Jenna, welcome to the Illuminate podcast. Thank you, Kristen. I'm so glad to be here. We're really glad to have you. And, you know, I um, had the privilege of being introduced to you by my husband, who works in a similar space, and he passed on to me your 1000 Wells book, which was um, an incredible read. And I'm just truly inspired by your life's work and what you've accomplished um, and what you accomplished at such a young age. Thank you. And I am a huge fan of George. And it was, it's been so fun to overlap with him throughout the years in various places, basically all over the world. And um, yeah, really grateful that I had an opportunity to actually take the time to to write out a lot of what I've learned and experienced. And I know it feels a little strange to have written a sort of memoir-esque book in my early 30s, um, but it uh, I, I consider it such a, a gift that I had the time and space to be able to at least record a certain season of my life down before I moved on to the next one. Yeah, that is definitely a gift, and it's a beautiful story. And maybe you can just tell a little bit um, about your story to our listeners and how 1000 Wells is about the um, organization that you founded, Bloodwater. Um, and so maybe you can just talk a little bit about that, what Bloodwater is and some of the fascinating journey that you took to get there. Yeah, sure. I think I've always been a girl on a mission ever since I was quite young. I've just paid attention and had a, a a real high empathy radar for anyone on the margins. And um, when I was in college, I became really passionate about uh, those who were HIV positive and really troubled by, um, this is kind of early 2000s, um, by how uh, the conversation uh, was uh, was so difficult to move people to compassion, um, to care about uh, what really felt like uh, the modern day leprosy of our time and um, and had this extraordinary opportunity right out of college to uh, co-found an organization that really focused on uh, changing and in influencing the mindsets of Americans about the HIV pandemic um, and then raise money and support 
um, to uh, encourage and get behind small grassroots organizations that were in sub-Saharan Africa doing great work in addressing HIV AIDS and then also water, sanitation, and hygiene. And so had this really tremendous opportunity uh, as a 20-something-year-old to try to take a, a mission um, and an idea and, and launch it into a movement. Um, I should say that my co-founders were not also 21-year-olds from college. It was, um, there was a, a really popular Christian music band called Jars of Clay, and they were huge in the 90s and even in the early 2000s. And um, they were specifically motivated by real learning from a Barna poll that in 2001, um, when evangelical Americans were asked if they had the opportunity to help somebody with AIDS, would they? And only 3% said that they would. And so they really wanted to take it upon themselves as, a, as artists and as, as uh, musicians with a platform to be able to engage their fan base in this conversation. So Bloodwater really was their vision, and I had the opportunity to be the one to help them launch it. Now, you didn't you write a 25-page proposal to them? I did. Yeah, there's, <laughs> there's an audacity that um, I don't know if I still have today, but I'm really glad I had it in college. And um, yeah, I had the opportunity to, to meet them the band members, they were uh, playing on my college campus and had heard that they were wanting to start Bloodwater and start their own nonprofit, but didn't quite know how they were going to do it. And I had been an activist in HIV um, on my campus and trying to engage a lot of people. And I just thought, oh my goodness, if a group of individuals who have this kind of following could, could actually lead this conversation, I know, I know how they can do it. And so I spent my Thanksgiving break at home writing uh, the beginnings of a proposal and then spent the following week back at college with my a couple of professors to look over what I'd written and basically said, I think I want to send this to them. And, and it, didn't, it wasn't even just this is how the organization could be set up and built, but it also was a case for why they should hire me to do it. Oh my gosh, I love it. And what were you studying in college or what what did you think you were going to do when you graduated college? I had a I had a first start in the my first couple of years. I was really committed to becoming a nurse and I wanted to have the most tangible skill set that I could use anywhere in the world to help anybody who was uh, struggling. And I was a horrible nursing student. I passed out at the sight of blood and needles and became a patient myself. And so <laughs> I was really disappointed and, uh, and uncertain about how I could help people, especially in the category of, of, of public health. And, uh, and so I switched, uh, because, because of what I learned from, from, uh, from a class in nursing about HIV, I that's actually when I was realizing that HIV isn't just a medical issue, it's also a social, political, uh, economic issue. And so I moved into political science as my major and really just tried to 
bring any uh, learnings and uh, public health, HIV engagement into those classes in the last like year and a half of trying to graduate with a new major in in the end. So it uh, yeah it was a blend of both the the, the failed medical attempts and um, and also just the the broader understanding of um, how how the world is set up and and what are the levers of, of change that are possible. Okay, I love that. I can completely relate to this story in in the sense of I also similarly wanted to go into the medical field and be a doctor for very similar reasons for those you know technical skills, and then I failed organic chemistry. And then I did a follow one summer at the hospital and they were taking, they were removing fluid from this woman's lung and they had to insert a needle and I passed out in front of all the residents and it was totally embarrassing. Oh no, (laughs) they really should do something about if you're going to sign up as a nursing major or pre-med, like there should just be a three-day boot camp of like, this is what this means actually. <laughs> and if anybody here has passed out in the last three days, let's have a further conversation before you take all these classes and then walk into a hospital and realize this is a really bad idea. Right. Well, you know, interestingly, when I was doing my follow that summer, so it was at Walter Reed at the Army Hospital. And, and then, you know, when I woke up and all the residents were standing over me, and I was oh mortified and they're like, look, it's fine. Everybody passes out in medical school. And they were, a lot of them went to the um, uniform services medical school. And so they said, even the guys that were in the front lines of combat that are now in medical school, they also passed out. So they were like, oh everybody's trying God. to reassure me, but organic chemistry, there was an, a bunch of other barriers. But I love what you said though, around HIV. And I think this is certainly relevant in the broader public health space around, you know, social, political, economic issues all contribute to so many public health disease related um, illnesses. And so there, there are, there are needs for other skill sets that can support and advance work in this field. Absolutely. And, and that was the most encouraging thing. And it feels so obvious to me today but, but coming in as a college student when it really feels like everything is supposed to be defined within the boundaries of one major. And I think a lot of the reasons why we end up going through college with, you know, a major in this and then like five minors in something else is that there's that hunch of like, maybe it's not fully just in this one vertical. Uh, and, and I think that, there's a there's a real gift in recognizing that if there's something you're passionate about, but you don't have the particular skill in in a technical sense, that to to reimagine or to to broaden the imagination of what else affects that particular issue or community or cause, because there's probably a, a place of overlap. And yeah. and just being able to uh, to have the experience, have experiences outside of that one technical thing, um, I think can be uh, really freeing in the paralyzing uh, feeling of the, oh no, I just signed up for a major that isn't going to work. Yeah, definitely. So tell me about Bloodwater. Tell our listeners about Bloodwater. So what happened? Yeah, so we we were 
in an incredible position where this band, Jars of Clay, they were traveling the country, uh, touring 100 plus dates a year in venues of 500 to 1,000 people. And they were all huge fans of this music group. And it's four guys who are deeply talented and thoughtful and, and incredibly articulate about the things they care about and see in the world. And so we just started by having a conversation at each of the shows. Uh, the band would stop towards the end of the concert and the lead singer, Dan Hasseltine, would just, he would, he would basically give five or 10 minutes of his stage time to telling some stories of communities that he's been influenced by uh, and, you know, really trying to paint a picture of individuals, in particular, uh, his experiences where he was speaking from Kenya, he was speaking from South Africa, and just being able to try to help uh, an American audience that knows very little about the HIV AIDS pandemic in Africa, and being able to bring that down to a single story, bring that down to a mother um, who is, you know, trying to care for her children, uh, who is HIV positive, who the vulnerabilities of uh, the lack of access to clean water and what that does to an already compromised immune system, the challenge of having to spend days, uh, their days walking for water and trying to uh, deal with basic needs when they're full of creative potential opportunity, just like any of us, um, but have such limitation as a result of, of, this, uh, of this disease. And, and so being able to just, one, uh, humanize the stories and then invite uh, the, the audience members to, um, to really just think about one small way to contribute. And it's interesting because we were an early startup. We didn't, while we had a great band with a huge platform, we didn't have any money uh, to start the organization with. And so we started with a real small ask, which was basically asking for $1 from each member in the audience. And it really connected because I think most people, when they hear about a, you know, a pandemic across the globe or something that feels so enormous, you immediately count yourself out as being able to help because you're not the millionaire, you're not the, you know, big, you know, political influencer or anything like that. And, uh, and we wanted to tell a different story, which was everybody has something to give. And collectively, if we can aggregate that, we might be able to influence the narrative and participate together. And so we started to collect these $1 bills, literally, from thousands of people across the U.S. And at the same time, I was spending time with uh, wonderful organizations in East and Southern Africa who were focused on a community engagement model uh, in areas where HIV was uh, very much the, the challenge in the community, but also where there were tremendous assets of women's groups who were already getting together uh, to support one another. They were already uh, having support groups, those who were HIV positive, and maybe because there was so much stigma around it, they weren't public about their um, about their condition with anybody else in their community, but, but they would gather together and share and have a support group. They would support each other economically, and then they would make plans for 
uh, areas that they thought they could help improve their community, some of that being uh, being able to bring a clean water source um, into their community, train their own neighbors in proper use of, wa of water, of sanitation, of hygiene, um, of caring for someone who's sick. And, and so we were building, I was building partnerships with organizations that were already uh, deploying uh, these great supports to these women's groups and then bridging the dollar bills that were being generated from these concerts and uh, bridging them with these small little grassroots organizations that were doing great things for their neighbors. And so that's really how we got started um, in, in building a small movement of, of compassion from a group uh, who, by way of statistics, weren't supposed to actually be the compassionate ones to respond. Mm, that's amazing. And that I love the power of community and yeah. how you leverage the women that were already there working, supporting one another. And that's so powerful, especially in these communities. I The beginning of your book started in Lyra. And um, I've spent a little bit of time there. And so I could feel the the communities that you were meeting with there and seeing the power of these women that are convening and that are leaders in their community um, and how they can, they have the ability to transform and to influence the way that, that other people in the community are living or acting. Yeah, I think I... In my own learning of, you know, being 21, 22, very unexperienced and taking on an executive director position of an organization that was rapidly growing, not because of our expertise, but, I, but because of the power of the story. Uh, in my own learning early on, the, the narrative really was about these, you know, large organizations and very uh, organizations coming from the West um, who have, you know, tremendous influence, power, money, and opportunity to be able to serve communities um, from afar. But a lot of times uh, the help that was brought from these large agencies um, wasn't always the most helpful uh, to the, to the community itself. And, uh, and in, in a lot of ways, in my own learning, it was just that discovery of what, what is the way to bridge the assets that are already there, the leadership, leadership that is already there, and support that as opposed to come in and you know, try to create a, a program from the outside that in a, in a lot of ways dehumanizes uh, the, the agency and, and like real deep knowledge and connection of an existing community. And that's complicated because it's it's so much easier to to try to intervene from uh, from the outside and and it's also very difficult to identify these local heroes and figure out a way to be able to support them well uh, from from afar and it's it's not it's been a messy journey but when it has worked it's been one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. Yeah. Yeah. And every community is different, right? There's an intricacy within each community. So what you're going to do in one is probably not exactly the same as what you're going to do in the other. Absolutely. And that's really complicated to 
communicate to an American audience, a donor audience, um, because we are, we are a culture of quick fixes and instant gratification and standardized solutions. Uh, and, and all we have to do though, is think about our own community, our own neighborhood and the particularities of it and imagine how, how unique it is to a neighborhood on the other side of the country um, or even on the other side of the town. Sure. Now you built a thousand wells, right? That's and right. Then, and then some. That's right. <laughs> yeah. What- so we had a, just to clarify, we had this initial goal uh, that, and uh, that was intended to, uh, to set some ambition for all of us, um, but felt a little bit out there, which was the 1000 Wells project which ultimately became the goal to provide a thousand communities across sub-Saharan Africa with access to safe water, sanitation, and hygiene, um, and with a bias towards the, or- the communities that were most ravaged by HIV. And, um, and so, yes, we did complete that, but it took eight years to get there. Wow. And which countries were you in? We were all over, but predominantly a lot of our partner work was Kenya, Uganda, Rwanda, Zambia, Central African Republic, and South Africa. Wow. And then how did you go about identifying the communities in particular? Were there prevalence reports that you were using, or how were you doing that mapping? Early on, we we knew very well that a rock band and a recent college grad was not were not going to be the best ones to determine <laughs> where where to place support uh, across a very large, vast, and um, varied um, continent. And so, um, so I think one of the I, th- I think one of the greatest points of wisdom in our uh, naivete uh, in early on was that we reached out to some organizations that were already there that have been doing this kind of work for decades. And they mentored us through the process and even allowed us to begin piloting our own partnership work and granting work to organizations through their work. And then uh, over time built our own capacity to be able to work directly with small grassroots organizations uh, to be able to um, manage it ourselves. And so, um, so it was an evolution for sure. And I, I love the, just the ability to have been the recipient of generous organizations that were not, um, didn't care so much about the brand of who was doing what or who was getting credit for what. And instead uh, really, recognized that they had the the experience and the knowledge to support us as we were developing our own organization. Today we we have requests for proposals that that come in from now the, the word of mouth across um, these smaller organizations that are really focused um, specialized in HIV um, are, and wash water, sanitation, hygiene are coming our way, which is, is really fun. So before we used to have to, you know, really knock on other people's doors and say, we want to help. Is this, (laughs) would you, would you be interested in exploring this partnership with us? That's great. So 
I'm sure you learned many life lessons from this work. Are there any that stand out to you? I mean, what would you say, or did you, what were some of the biggest things you learned from these communities that you were working within? I think that, yeah, I think that the, the particularity of place uh, is, is something, you know, having spent a decade back and forth all, all over East and Southern Africa and having, you know, certain communities that I would be a return visitor to and being able to watch um, what, what each particular community is made up of and how they, how they change and grow. I think that from the 25-page proposal of what I thought Bloodwater could do and be didn't quite understand what kind of time is required for change. And, and I think the gift that I was given by having a decades view into the life and development of many different communities is to see how, how long it takes for something to actually change. If you've got, if you've got a community, for instance, uh, in the area of HIV, where the stigma of of the of of the disease is something so much that you will not you will not go and be seen at the local clinic for fear of it being found out that you are HIV positive and you know because maybe your community members will think that you were cursed, think that you did something um, immoral or deserved it or whatever the, the cultural implication of HIV um, it has in, in that community, that the fear would hold you back from receiving the care that would save your life. How to imagine that a community that is, that is driven quietly by this fear of stigma could eight, 10, 12 years later, have anyone who's HIV positive actually living openly and proudly about it in a way that they are some of the greatest contributors and leaders in their community and ensuring that they're preventing other cases from happening um, and that it's, that it's actually um, a point of courage and uh, a point of leadership within a small village. That is, it's remarkable to imagine that that change could ever happen. But I think it was, it's also just this lesson of like, that's not something that that changes, you know, overnight or at the end of one year when you have to put your annual report together to, to prove what kind of change has happened. Um, and I think that, I think it's such a, an important reminder when we are broken by the, the things that are not right in the world and, and by our own attempts to uh, make the world a little bit better. Um, I think it's, it's really been, my learning has been about measuring, measuring that impact um, in decades, not in months or years. And it's really hard to do that when the pressure, especially if you're a nonprofit and you're trying to tell your donors all the good things that they've done. If, you know, 
if every six months you don't actually have like the most dramatic information to share, um, but you can see and know and understand that there is effort and intentionality and just that slow, hard work of faithfulness to it that you get to be witness to that the community is doing, but it's very hard to translate in, you know, a special newsletter to a donor. Sure. I mean, I have chills of you talking about how the people who were stigmatized the most are now leaders in the community. I started my career in HIV as well. And so I've seen that discrimination that exists and the, you know, hiding of, of this information. And so that's truly remarkable. And, you know, I think you're so right about these things don't happen in six months. And um, what a what a gift that you had to go on this journey for a decade to really see how it created such significant impact. Yeah, isn't it amazing? I mean, I think it's, especially in the, the HIV space when you know, like 30 years ago to be HIV positive was a death sentence. Mm -hmm. And today for it to be a chronic disease that you could actually like live and thrive living with. And when, you know, the pull for me, which I was, you know, late in the game in the 2000s, but um, but joining in at that point and feeling the just the emergency, the urgency and the devastation of it, where, you know, our initial our initial funding support was for hospice care, because that's mm -hmm. really all it felt like was, you know, was the approach, which was basically like, OK, we have so many people who this is a death sentence and now it's can they can they die with dignity and love and care and comfort in the midst of of this you know of this devastation and uh, and even like this one hospice that we were supporting in Cape Town South Africa is like no longer a hospice it's just a hospital <laughs> like wow. because now patients come in and come out and they're even like the, the prevention of what's of, of the cases. I mean, it's, it, it is one of those things where you just think if AIDS has a different story, then what are the other, what are the other like social and, you know, political and health issues that are happening in our world right now that we feel like is a total lost cause and actually gets to have a different ending. Yes. But it's a long game. Yes. And I am so inspired by the the individuals, the actors, like all of the people who globally have committed to moving the needle in the HIV and AIDS space that like collectively we get to celebrate this kind of transformation and change that I know for like when you were doing your work and like right at the beginning of the president's emergency plan for AIDS relief, it was like, this kind of felt like a last ditch effort of like, maybe is an emergency plan, you know, emergency maybe plan. This yes. Is like, this is the, you know, we're just going to try to put some fires out and instead that it's, that it's a complete systems change of, of the, the narrative is just, remarkable and should be a point of encouragement for all these other really difficult things that are happening in our world today. Yeah, I love that. That is, that's really motivating. 
All right. So let me ask you another question. So you met your equally amazing husbands along this journey. Tell us about (laughs) that story. So again, being a girl on a mission for my whole life, uh, when I was leading Bloodwater in the first several years, it was, you know, early 20s, I had constantly got asked by my dad in particular, but um, friends too, about my dating life. And, and I just, you know, very like confidently and arrogantly, you know, reminded them that I am busy. (laughs) (laughs) And where were you living at this time? So I was living in Nashville, Tennessee. Nashville is where Jars of Clay and then the Christian music industry is really based. Um, And I was spending most of my time, um, I was based in Nashville, but I was either on the road around the U.S. in a tour bus with Jars of Clay for the concerts where we would raise money and meet with major donors around the country, or I was in somewhere in a village in, you know, East East Africa, um, predominantly Kenya and Uganda and Rwanda, and um, and just very proudly, independently, self sufficiently doing my thing. And um, and I had done, I had gone on a couple of dates uh, just to um, appease. Uh, the questions and the pressure. And I just, I felt insulted every time I would go on a date and just felt like I had to dumb myself down or felt like um, the world that I was engaged in just didn't seem to connect or make sense to the person I was like sitting next to at a hockey game, you know, mm-hmm. eating popcorn with. Um, and so it was, uh, so it was an interesting surprise in that uh, I was flying to Kenya and I was uh, flying Nashville to Detroit, Detroit to Amsterdam, and then Amsterdam to Nairobi. And when I was boarding the flight in Amsterdam, this like gorgeous guy (laughs) calls my name out and it's, it's like, Jenna? And I swear, I have no idea. I couldn't remember who he was or why I knew him. Uh-huh. I had you know, super groggy just coming off of this flight. When you don't want to meet anybody because yeah, your hair is I'm, oily, yeah, you're tired, I'm, you're not in your best outfit. <laughs> I'm wearing my sweatpants and my Seek Justice t-shirt <laughs> and uh, my Africut, which is my very, very short haircut because of all of the- Africut. Uh, nice. Africut because of all of the um, bucket baths. I was doing like because at any time I would stay somewhere I'd I'd homestay in in someone's home in a village and so yeah so I wasn't really paying attention to this and so one of the band members was with me from Jars of Clay Charlie and I was like Charlie I don't know who that is so he came up with me to introduce himself and um, so he said hey I'm Charlie and James said I'm James and I met Jenna in New York a few a few months ago I was like, what? And, and I, so then I remembered that I was in New York and I was, uh, in a meeting, um, with my friend, Scott Harrison, who was just um, getting, uh, getting started with his organization called Charity Water. And I was leaving a meeting with Scott and James was coming in 
to uh, meet with Scott because James was about to go volunteer for Charity Water in Uganda, and I needed directions to the airport, and James offered to give them to me, and so we had this, like, maybe two-minute exchange, and it was very kind because he, like, it was raining in New York, and so he was like, don't take a cab. You should take the train. Let me, you know, here's how you do it. Um, and so apparently made an impression on him and obviously Clearly. an impression on me. But um, so when we got on the plane, it was actually a very empty flight. And so I took the initiative um, just out of interest, honestly, just out of, there was nothing. I didn't know this was going to happen, but um, he had a whole row to himself. And so at one point during the flight, I sat next to him and we just ended up talking and it was it was unbelievable. It was like a six or seven hour conversation. And it was the best non-date date that I've ever had. Wow. Um, we just, it, there were so many commonalities. There were so, like, we were super different and yet, and came from like completely different backgrounds, but the things we cared about and um, the work that we were interested in, the people we were reading, like our faith alignment, all of this stuff that just came as a surprise. And so um, at the end of that flight, um, you know, we had exchanged numbers, but I did, it felt more like kindred spirit, but I was, he was, I was just like, he's not going to be the person, you know, he lives in New York, all this different stuff, but turned out like three months later, I was back in New York and I thought to reach out to him and we grabbed breakfast and we, you know, and then like it ended up, you know, turning into lunch and then turning into dinner and then meet up the next day. And then, um, it's, it's wild, but, um, we were, you know, I was living in Nashville and he was in New York and we, but we were on the phone forever all the time. And like you were in high school talking on the yes, phone. Yes. yes. Love it. And I'm like, how is this happening? This is like, oh my goodness. We just spoke for four hours. And even like while I was in Rwanda on a trip, I remember my colleague just being like, and you are like sneaking out all the time to take these calls with James. And I was like, am I? And, um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it's wild. But um, within three months of our long distance dating, um, James proposed to me and we were married within the year of our Oh marriage. my gosh. You, when you know, you know, right? Exactly. That, and I never believed in that. Never. It was, I had like this, once I, you know, get to a certain point and I'm ready to meet someone, we will date for like, we will, in, you know, we will go through like at least two seasons of everything, you know, before anything we will of course live in the same, you know, location. Like we had, we hardly knew each other and we, we made the leap and it was, you know, the best decision I've ever made. Oh my gosh. I love your meat story. That might be one of my favorite meat stories I've ever heard. That's, that's amazing. Whenever I talk to college students, they always ask about it and I'm like, you know, so I think the big takeaway is fly hot because <laughs> you yes. actually never know who you're yes. going to. You know, I do think about that a lot of times when I'm traveling for work and, you know, when you're on these long hauls, you want to be comfortable, but then you end up landing somewhere and you maybe, you know, scurried off to a meeting somewhere or yeah. So there is something to, uh, to having some sort of appearance on the airplane, right? <laughs> However, I guess I was just in my sweats and my, you know, seek justice t-shirt with an sure. apricot and it, you know, it didn't, it didn't hinder my ability that. to meet the man of my dreams. So, so I do. Did I, he move to Nashville or did you move to yeah, New York? Yeah. Yeah. We, it was really, 
It was, that was a really complicated reality, right? Which was, I'm really rooted in, in Nashville and I'm, you know, leading this emerging organization. I'm its executive director. It's not going to work for me to move to New York. James actually had uh, a full career in the theater and that was Mm. his background. And he just, when we had met, he had been right in a career shift, a real deep sense of, you know, moving out of the, out of being an actor in the theater and actually working more in international development. And so uh, he had uh, been applying to master's programs uh, with a focus on international education, international development. And one of them was Vanderbilt, which was in Nashville. And, and so it, it, it made for what was going to be a very difficult reality um, made it much easier when he was accepted into the program and, you know, could make sense of, of coming to Nashville. But I also, I also think it set the tone for something that I'm so grateful for, which was uh, he, he made the move and he dropped his career and um, made the, the big first sacrifice in our marriage on behalf of my particular professional calling and uh, vocation at the time. And really for, you know, for the first six years of our marriage, uh, I, it, a lot of the life decisions that he, you know, was, was trying to make were, were deeply influenced and prioritized by his commitment to my leadership, uh, staying at Bloodwater. Wow. That's incredible partnership. Yeah. It, that's a real gift. And I, I can't imagine what it would have been like to have had to fight for or defend um, what I was leading and to have to have given it up so quickly. Um, I'm really grateful I didn't have to figure out what that would have looked like. That's great. And now you have, you and James have two kids. We do. Yes, we have a a five-year-old son, Jude, and a two-year-old daughter, Haven. Oh, beautiful names. <laughs> they are they are full of life. They are uh, so much fun. And they completely rocked our world. Um, I think, you know, I, again, had a big transition, even in just being willing to consider dating. Luckily, you know, fell head over heels for James. And so I was able to eventually integrate this sense of being both a you know, a, a leader, uh, with a very external facing leader, plus being a wife, mm-hmm. um, and what that looked like and, and being in partnership. And, you know, James, after his grad program at Vanderbilt ended up with this remarkable opportunity to, uh, become the executive director of a nonprofit that was, um, actually tied to Bloodwater. It was one of the communities that we had early stage supported in Western Kenya was founded by two brothers, uh, Kenyan brothers, whose father uh, and mother both died of HIV. And their uh, father's dying wish was for a clinic to be built in their home community. And um, these two brothers actually became doctors at Vanderbilt. Um, And so they actually hired James uh, to become the executive director. And what it meant was that 
you know, for the first six years of our marriage, we were both executive, or I guess, yeah, for, yeah, six years of our marriage, we were both executive directors of nonprofits based in Nashville, focused in, in East Africa. And it gave us tremendous, um, freedom and flexibility to be able to, uh, spend our time. A lot of our marriage was, you know, in villages in, in Kenya and, you know, and then being rooted back in Nashville. And we were able to be really flexible with our travel and we could, you know, pick up and, and go to Kenya for several months at a time. Um, and we could give each other a lot of space, uh, in terms of, you know, not seeing each other for a while because each of us are on the road. And, um, and so when, you know, when we were like seven years into our marriage and, you know, really, um, trying to think about starting a family, uh, we knew that it would, it, it would rock our worlds and we knew that it would make a lot of, uh, uh, it would make us have to face some different changes and decisions, but of course we didn't know. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. You don't, you don't know until never, it happens. Yeah. Never know. And we were those like very arrogant individuals who were like, Oh, if anybody can do it, we can do it. Like we're not, our world is not going to change. Like we're going to, like, we're just going to like, you know, put our baby on our back and, you know, live in the village and, you know, go back and forth all over the world. And so when Jude was born, um, both James and I were already pretty worn out, um, from the leadership responsibilities of our growing organizations and really just some of the, the, the deep griefs of, you know, when you're working in, uh, a space as, as volatile and vulnerable as HIV, like there's a lot of deaths. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of disappointments. There's a lot, there's just a lot of grief that you carry, uh, on behalf of, and with the communities that you're implicated in and a part of. And so we were kind of in our own mini traumas of managing that. And then we were new parents, which Mm -hmm. even if we had like the most happy go lucky, easy life, the welcome of a child (laughs) was so disruptive um, that we, we just, we were in a total spin of, cause we continued to try to do everything that we were doing before. And, um, and we really had to really had to navigate what that, uh, what that was going to look like because we absolutely wanted to be parents and we absolutely wanted to be front lines workers on mm-hmm. these issues that we care so deeply about, but they really did collide for us. So how did you navigate it? I think we, um, I think we worked really intentionally together on keeping it front of mind and, and, and inviting mentors to speak into our marriage and our life. And, um, we created a set of core values that we had, cause we're both executive directors and nonprofits, <laughs> yeah, but we, said we had core values for our marriage, um, that I we, love that. we had written, um, before we ever decided on a wedding, you know, colors or cake or whatever, we just said, let's do, let's do marriage prep first, and then we can plan the wedding. And, um, and so we, we, we've taken those very seriously, um, throughout our life together. And, um, and so we, we did a deep dive assessment of where are we really living out these, these values for our marriage and where are we not? And, um, and it, it was pretty telling that, um, we had actually, in a lot of ways, over, like overemphasized the the sort of heroic nature of the work that we were doing 
and we we overvalued it and and in in fact I think we exploited it in some ways because it um, you know people give you like a get out of jail free pass when you're like working on AIDS in Africa basically is what people think or when you're when it looks like you're making more sacrifices on behalf of other people and you're really not but there's like a nobility to certain careers and I think that um, we that was the story we were telling ourselves which was like this thing has to come first. We're dealing with life and death and, and we have a lot of people, um, who are relying on us. And, um, and we had to, we had to really understand, uh, that again, the learning from our own communities that we've been a part of, um, in particular, this one in, in Western Kenya and Lawala, um, that, that we're deeply known by and know is watching what these families, what their commitment to their own children and to their own neighborhood looks like and why we were so far off as exemplars in that category um, and what it would look like to actually learn from them and try to hold that, hold that standard to ourselves. And it shrunk our world um, in a lot of ways. And it, it was about a year of discernment, but after a year um, of trying to, of really working through it together we ultimately decided, both of us, um, that we would step down as executive directors of our organizations um, in the same season um, and allow the the rising leadership that was already there and apparent and like a lot of what we had built was so, was so strong and we were actually hindering it from being able to grow into its next stage and that we would take the back seat there so that we could, that we could really be the, the main uh, person, people in Jude's life, which at the time we had, you know, basically outsourced almost everything of Jude's um, life to other people. And so um, it was a very, very difficult uh, decision, but beautiful because we did it together and we had a lot of the support of our community in it. That's incredible. And thanks for your honesty in that process, because becoming a parent, especially when there are two working parents deeply committed to the work, is not easy. And I don't think people always are open to talking about that. So thank you for sharing that. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, um, I, I mean, we've learned a lot. <laughs> and, um, and we're, you know, we're, we're really grateful um, for the decisions that we've made. Um, but it doesn't come without just, you know, a ton of grief and the identity shifting, um, is especially because we had had, you know, so much time together as a unit without kids and our, you know, external identities were on what we did, not on who we were. And, um, and I think that, uh, that we've, you know, that's been now, um, it's been almost four years since that shift. And that, that actual like transition out of our organizations, and um, and we, I, th I think we've learned probably just as much um, about everything in life <laughs> in these last four years than you know than I did in the, the the twelve years of of being on the front lines and leading Bloodwater. Wow! And do you attribute that to your motherhood? I I attribute it to. Yes, I attribute it to motherhood and I attribute it also to the removal, the, the distancing from the identity that I liked the most. 
So mm-hmm. I liked being the activist, the front lines person, the one who, you know, the girl on the mission. And I, so I, I leaned into that identity and I, it was my strength and it's, you know, it's beautiful when your gifting is actually met with, um, opportunity to be able to have a, have the ability to live that out. Um, but I think the removal of that, um, core identity, um, was also like feeling the void of that and saying, well, who am I outside of the career? Who am I outside of the accolades of my leadership success? Um, it was very, has been a very challenging space to sit in. It's very uncomfortable. I think with motherhood, the gift is, um, it has not filled, it has not fulfilled that gap but it has filled another part of me and engaged another part of me that I didn't even know I had. Um, and that would not have been, um, called upon, um, in, in my, you know, executive director position at Bloodwater. Uh, and so I think, and I think I've had a different experience than many. Um, some people I think have been able to beautifully integrate both, and uh, James and I, admittedly, we had we had gone so far into burnout mode that we were kind of disqualified from being able to try out the integration of both. We actually needed to be pulled out of the scene um, and in a lot of ways kind of be in a detox mm-hmm. <laughs> um, season. Uh, I think the thing with motherhood has been that I so overvalued change at scale and, um, you know, these thousand wells project. I mean, come on, that's just, it's like the ambition of these like big lofty goals. Sure. And then with motherhood, just it's the small, little daily faithful one life at a time, which is actually you know, the learning from Bloodwater of like the change that's actually happening is that same thing. It just was framed differently. Um, and so I, yeah, my perspective on the world and the things that I value and my ability to stay present in something that feels so mundane and tedious at times. And so like, am I going to be a human napkin for the rest of my life? (laughs) Do you have any idea what I've done or used to get to do? And now this is, you know, I've been reduced to this and yet actually feeling almost this like sanctification experience through it. It's probably some of the most sacred work I've ever been a part of. Wow. That's beautiful. And poignant. And there's, I mean, there's so much to unpack there. Um, and I'm just incre- incredibly amazed at the journey that you and James took to get there and that you both said, okay, we're going to take this step back and realize that you both needed to do that um, for yourselves and for your family. That's a really hard decision to make. I think we shocked everyone. Mm-hmm. I, it, I think it was like, oh, no, they didn't. Like, (laughs) seriously, just do this. And we were shocked as well. But at the same time, um, again, like really being guided by these, these values that we set forth, it was like, no, this, this is in alignment, this is not off. And 
Um, and we will reevaluate, you know, as the years go by. Uh, but for now, like we were able to just like really confidently, um, though we were, you know, shaking and our knees knocking, there was still just like a quiet confidence of like, this is the right thing. And we're going to, we're going to be courageous about it and we'll do it together. I love that. That's incredible. Well, let me ask you a couple of our end of podcast questions. Um, I have probably a million more questions to ask, ask of you, but perhaps we'll need to bring you back on for a part two. Um, <laughs> so um, obviously our podcast is called Illuminate and we are talking to people who illuminate in their own lives, um, but would love to know somebody who you think illuminates in their life. It can be somebody famous, somebody close to you, but somebody that you'd like to share with our listeners. Yeah, I think, you know, somebody who has been a tremendous mentor and example in my life and and absolutely represents the Illuminate category is uh, a woman named Becca Stevens. And she is a priest and a social entrepreneur. Uh, and she and a mother and a wife. And um she's based out of she's based out of Nashville and um has been uh, shepherding a, a, a community at Vanderbilt, um, and is the Episcopal priest there, um, as a, the chaplain at Vanderbilt. Um, and so, so she's got this sort of traditional priest role, but then almost 20 years ago, she, uh, has been working with uh, women who are coming out of prostitution and coming out of jail, coming off the streets, uh, in and building a recovery program for them, and then ended up building a social enterprise uh, for these graduates of this residency program, and um, and launched this social enterprise called Thistle Farms, and uh, based off of this um, beautiful belief that love heals, and she just. Um, She's so creative and she's so prophetic, not just in the words that she would speak on a Sunday, but in the way that she leads and in the, and in the organization that she has built. Um, Thistle Farms is now creates these beautiful products um, that are bath and body products and candles and different things, but they're like sold in Whole Foods all across the country. And she's actually now started um, b- bringing in all these other social enterprise um, organizations from around the world that are also, uh, employing and empowering, uh, women survivors. And, um, and I think, you know, her work is something to know about, um, and, um, that I think would, you know, be of interest, um, to your listeners. Um, but I also just think like she has lived out, um, seasons of, uh, from like stories of her own brokenness, Um, but like faithfully sticking with what she believes in, in the world and can hold these various identities as social entrepreneur, priest, mother of three sons, you know, she's, her husband, uh, is like a Grammy award winning songwriter. Um, she's like, it's just, I've been baffled at the ability to hold all of these identities and yet she does it without any kind of stress <laughs> or hype around it. 
Um, and so I think she's, yeah, she's the one for me. I love that. And I, well, I've definitely heard of Thistle Farms and I'm definitely going to look her up. She sounds remarkable. She's Thank great. you for sharing her. Yeah. So we, this podcast was started uh, essentially out of a supper club. And so we are very into food. Um, and so we are asking our guests to share either a favorite recipe or um, a dish that they love if they're not a cook. So what would you share with, with the listeners? So I'm a vegetarian by marriage. Okay. Love it. Um, and we are, we have vegetarians and vegans in our supper club. So that yeah. works well. <laughs> so it's been really fun to, um, uh, to come up with vegetarian recipes that are uh, loved by our meat eating friends. Um, our biggest win, the biggest crowd pleaser is um, a, a taco, our taco night. Um, and it's, it's basically because it, you do your homemade guacamole, um, you have, uh, black beans with, uh, cumin, um, and then, and then it's this, um, spinach, cilantro, green onion, lime, like salad, feta mm. cheese, and, um, and toasted pepitas, uh, that go onto, um, you know, your tortilla of choice. And, and then like, you know, a great salsa, but I don't, I don't know how it's worked out this way, but like, it's basically been the, anytime somebody's coming over for dinner and we have our kids because our kids love taco night. Um, and it's just, it's this full, like able, you're able to just like put all of the different toppings out on the table and, you know, people can create, um, along the way. And it just, it's, it's communal and, and it basically, when people come back for dinner, they ask for taco night. So I guess that's <laughs> probably a good one to recommend. I love that. Now, who's the cook in your house? You or James? Me. And interestingly, okay. it was James when we first got married. I was terrified of the kitchen and not interested at all. And, uh, and so for the first couple of years, James was predominantly like cooking and trying to invite me in. But then he'd always joke that like somehow I'd end up like outside on the phone with my mom or like taking the garbage out or like <laughs> out of cooking. Um, and interestingly, that's another like kind of in this season where I'm, you know, not with blood water, my, my greatest form of solitude and time, which used to be on airplanes is, um, is now in the kitchen. And I absolutely love the creative, act of it. And I have one day, I have one day a week where I basically prep most of, you know, the meals, um, and then, and then benefit from it throughout the week. Love it. That's awesome. I'm with you on the, I love being in the kitchen as well. Now, if I could hire somebody to clean all the dishes after yes. I cook, that would be Absolutely. my ideal scenario. <laughs> yeah, we don't have a dishwasher, so it is. Oh, uh, yeah. It, I, we, I really do try to, like, clean a dish as I go. <laughs> yes, or else you'll uh, be spending an hour afterwards. Yes. Right, exactly. Now, do you, you obviously wrote um, a beautiful book, which we'll include in the show notes. Do you have a book rec recommendation? I have so many book recommendations. Um, I think maybe a couple. One is um, just if there's like interest in trying to know more about 
issues that are going on globally, um, I think in particular for women around the globe. Um, this is, it's about seven years old, but um, Nick Kristoff and his wife, Cheryl Wudan wrote Half the Sky. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I just find it to be one of the most accessible uh, reads that, um, that highlight uh, the particular challenges um, that women face around the globe um, and, and also some of the great uh, organizations and, um, and solutions that are, that are um, coming by way of uh, Nick Kristoff as a New York Times reporter. So a lot of it comes um, in a reporter form, um, but I think it's a great, a beautiful, comprehensive picture, accessible and deeply inspiring. Yeah, it's an excellent book. I, I totally back your recommendation on that. And then this one is, I felt a little bit hesitant about it just because I haven't read it in a while, but I name it all the time. And so I want to pick it up and read it again. Um, it's, it's called Two-Part Invention, and it's by Madeline Langle. And most people know Madeline Langle through her novel, A Wrinkle in Time. Um, but she has also written beautiful memoirs of her own life. Um, she's no longer with us, but um, she... Uh, she wrote this one in particular um, as her husband was dying of cancer. And it was basically her look of a, of a 40-year marriage um, at the end of it. And wow. so it was a gift that um, a mentor of mine had given to me and James when we got engaged. And he basically said, like, you may find it strange that I'm giving you a story of, you know, a wife who's losing her husband, um, at the end of his, you know, at at the end of their marriage. But I, I think there's some benefit, um, for you to be able to see somebody's ending as you come into your beginning. And I just loved, I loved it in so many, for so many different reasons, but it really did draw out things that you think matter so much in the beginning that maybe don't, um, or just one person's perspective of the things that really matter at the end. Um, and that did, did last, um, for those 40 years. And, um, and just, I, I thought it was a, a beautiful reflection and, and it's, they're, they're both artists and writers. Um, but I also love that, uh, that they really, it, it really seemed like the two of them honored their partnership and each other's particular calling and profession and found ways to navigate that together. Oh, I'm definitely adding that to my list of books to read in the stack. That's great. Okay. So now a fun question. What is something that you are loving right now? It could be a product. It could be a life hack. It could be some, someone that's inspirations, inspirational to you, something that you're just loving right now. Um, I think it's a life hack and it's, uh, uh, it's kind of fun, but it doesn't sound fun. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So James and I, um, we tried this out about a year ago and, um, and it has, it is deeply fruitful when we actually do it. And it's basically a commitment to be screen free after nine 30 every night Mm, on a week. Love that. Okay. And so we can do whatever we want on a Friday night or Saturday night. 
Um, and it's, it's ours to, it's our loss, you know, because our kids are definitely waking us up right before 6am. <laughs> and, um, so we found that our attempts at unwinding at the end of the day, um, you know, once long days, whether, you know, at home or at work, and then like that witching hour with the children and like, you know, multiple times of trying to get somebody to go to bed. And all you want to do is just like feel like you have your own time and you can wind down. And so what would we do? We would like watch Colbert or watch Trevor Noah or, you know, like scroll our phones or whatever it was. And it just like, it kept us up late. It kept us disconnected and we would just be like tired and exhausted. And we just found it felt, it feels so hard to do. We're back on it again. We, we veered off, but we're back on it again. It's so hard to just do that, but like it's turned into like sitting out on the porch, drinking a glass of wine and having a conversation. It's turned into reading the book by our nightstand that we actually really wanted to read, but like always moved to the screen instead. It's turned into more time with each other, if you know what I mean. And it's turned into way more sleep. Um, and it's just like, it has been like the most important, helpful life hack that is like it just requires regulation now that we are just so drawn to to screens and it's really hard to it feels like it's not it feels like you get more rest by just being able to like scroll something um and be mindless but there's actually a lot more there's a lot more rejuvenation that comes from being distanced from it yeah wow that's I've thought a lot about that as well. So, all right, I'm going to have to file that one away. And it's a hard one. It's a yeah. hard one. You both believe in it and like, like it, Keep it, each other accountable. Took, it really only took a week for us to be like, oh my gosh, we are so ridiculous. We should always be doing this. Yes. Like, what are we thinking to, yeah, to just. Okay. I love that. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And my last question for you, Jenna, is what is your message for the world? you know, no, no big deal. Uh, (laughs) I think that, I think that the, the message, I mean, I have many messages, but I think the one that's born out of my own, my own experience and perspective at this moment, you know, at 37 years old with, um, with the life that I have, I think it's really about looking at your life in seasons And whatever is in front of you, um, especially in terms of like the, if there's, if there's certain things that you really want to see change, um, you know, whether it be, you know, big social change of, of something as grandiose as, you know, the HIV AIDS pandemic, or, you know, just faithfully like raising a child who knows that he or she is loved it's just, it's this slow, faithful commitment to it. And, and I think everything about our world is telling us that we can achieve or we can reach something or we can, we can get something done. We can hack it, that we can do it quickly and that there's a shortcut or there's a faster, more optimized way to do it. And I just think that the reminder of if we're so blessed to have, uh, multiple years in our lives to look at it seasonally to understand that there are certain you know times to be able to focus and faithfully 
work towards one thing over and over and over again, day in and day out, day in and day out, and that it's worth it. Like, and that it's not, it's not the report at the end of the day. It's not the report at the end of the year. Um, but really like at the end of a season or at the end of, you know, a decade or two, like what, what kind of, what kind of change might you actually get to see and celebrate at the end of that? Um, if we continue to hold our perspective in seasons, um, as opposed to just the immediate and what's in front of us right now. And it's, you know, this, I talk about in my book, but like one of the lessons, you know, that my Kenyan family really taught me is pole pole, slowly by slowly. And, and I think that that today feels more urgent and relevant of a message than ever. Um, and you can apply that to most anything. But, um, but I think that that's, I think that the, the pacing of love, relationships, service, care, it's that faithful day to day, slowly by slowly. Thank you, Jenna, for coming on the show. And don't forget to pick up a copy of Jenna's book, 1000 Wells, How an Audacious Goal Taught Me to Love the World Instead of Save It. I hope this interview inspired you to live audaciously and know it's okay to take a step back and to embrace seasons in life. If you enjoyed the show, you can find us at theilluminatepodcast.com and on Instagram at theilluminatepodcast. If you enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a rating on iTunes. Thank you so much for illuminating Jenna, and thank you so much for listening today. Have a great week.